0: Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers podcast. We've had some dope episodes in the past. And today is uh, just like the rest of them, just an amazing, an amazing episode. We'll be interviewing the new Georgia Project's executive director, Insei Ufat, to talk about Georgia politics and voting rights. You know, voting rights are a huge issue, not just in Georgia, but across the country. We'll dig into all of that. But before we get to Nse, I wanted to talk about the economy particularly the news last week, the prices are moving up, that the job numbers weren't what we thought they'd be, and you're already starting to see Republican talking points emerge that are seeking to slow down the Biden economic agenda. In case you missed it, the April jobs report showed that the U.S. economy added 266,000 jobs at a time when economists expected the economy to add almost 1 million jobs. At the same time, we saw prices raise about 0.8% in April, an increase of about 4.2% compared to this time last year. This was the highest increase in prices of things like gas, food, clothing, etc. since 2008. So the first thing we hear from Republicans is that the additional $300 in unemployment assistance unemployed Americans are receiving is why we're seeing slower than expected job growth. And they're saying that the Biden economic agenda is too ambitious and is pushing prices too high with the economy potentially overheating. So, that's BS. But for starters, there's an easy solution to slow job growth, and that's raising wages to make it worth people's time to work in the middle of a pandemic. Attacking temporary unemployment assistance when Americans are still looking for work and recovering from a pandemic is short-sighted. Equally short-sighted is taking a month of data around inflation when we're still well below the rate the Fed targets before they'll raise interest rates, And taking that to mean that we shouldn't invest in our infrastructure or in our families and communities is just as silly as it sounds. Republicans are grasping for straws on this one. Prices should go up when we've been in the House for a year. We want to spend money, and that's a good thing. And wages have been stagnant for years. So if working people are finally getting the raise that helps them make ends meet, that's a good thing too. Democrats shouldn't shy away from that. It's something to take pride in and to keep pushing for more because we won't win in 2022 and 2024 by being shy. We're in power and we should act like it. And that's that on that. Now, on to my sister, Insei, for a dope episode on all things you need to know about voting rights and how to organize, particularly in the Deep South.
1: This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with $25,000 Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel, tis crunchy yet soft, tis filling yet has a hole, tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's, huzzah, a toast to breakfast.
0: Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bukhari Sellers podcast. We actually have a dope guest on today who is going to walk us through what it means when you have those ideas about activism and policy and grassroots activism, and how to actually make it work and change the world. Shout out to the homie Nse. What's going on? How are you?
2: I'm great. How are you?
0: I'm doing good. You know, we start each one of our episodes the same way because I want people to Understand your background and where you come from. Uh, you've been a corporate lawyer, a labor lawyer, a lobbyist, a community organizer, and now you're the nonprofit executive as the executive director of the New Georgia Project. What led you to the work that you do now? And what was it about the New Georgia Project that attracted you after making all these various stops?
2: Yeah, I am born in Nigeria, raised in Southwest Atlanta. I'm an Atlanta public school graduate.
0: It's a uh, little different. That's a little different than Nigeria to South the SWATs.
2: Yeah, <laughs> Nigeria to the SWATs. Uh, <laughs> I tell people that I am a Southerner twice. Born in Southern Nigeria uh, and raised in the Southern part of the United States. And I think, you know, when my mom and I made the decision that like, we would become U.S. citizens, you know, getting ready, looking at high school graduation, wanting to make sure that I, you know, coming from a, a working class immigrant family, single mom, that I wanted to get access to all the resources that I could uh, in order to continue my education. And so uh, my mom got a third job. Mm -hmm. Uh, to hire an attorney to sort of navigate us through the process. And I was responsible for making sure that we passed the citizenship exam, that she wasn't going to embarrass me. We were both going to pass. And, you know, I think that, I feel like that's a clear sort of jumping start moment for me um, in thinking about the sort of gap between the rhetoric of American democracy and the reality of how it is experienced by black folks, by immigrants, by poor people. And so I've never been comfortable with that gap, I've never been comfortable with that tension um, and thinking about, you know, democracy and the power of the vote to sort of change our material circumstances and, and power, right? Mm-hmm. Like who has it, who doesn't? How much do we need in order to stop awful things from happening in our community? Um, How much do we need to, you know, build the Georgia, build the America that our families deserve? And so, again, you know, working class immigrant kid. So you do well in school, you go to the highest bidder. And so I went to the company that offered me the most money when I graduated, because that's what I thought I was supposed to do. And while I was very good at it, because my name is my name. Uh, shout out to Marlo Sanfield. Um, exactly. Like, <laughs> What's up? <Yeah. laughs> um, you know, so doing everything that I can to sort of bring about the change that I want to see in the world uh, was really important to me. And so, um, but I got real clear that I wanted my five to nine, um, the work that I did on the evenings and, and on the weekends, um, the organizing, the community building that I was doing, that I, I thought that I could, that that was what I was supposed to be doing. Like That's my calling. And so, um, you know, Left the energy sector and moved into labor. And so, you know, again, getting uh, more sophisticated about my power analysis, getting more sophisticated about Mm -hmm. how I organize people, organize resources. And I was living and working in Canada uh you know how a lot of people say you know when things get really tough and bad in the US, uh, I'm moving to Canada. Um, well, I did it <laughs> um, and <laughs> but
0: you came back. so that says a lot about that analysis too. Yeah.
2: but I came back um, and I came back because of Stacy. Lauren Growargo uh, and Stacy. Oh yeah uh, you know Lauren and I uh, became friends when we were like young professionals uh, in Ohio right after I graduated from law school and was working for Me, And uh, she said, I want to introduce you to someone. She's a state-led state rep uh, in your hometown. Um, are you coming home for the holidays? I was like, hmm, have you met my mother? Of course, I'm coming home for the holidays. (laughs) Mama Ufad is not about those
1: games.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Came home, had a wonderful brunch on New Year's Day with Stacey. She laid out her vision uh, for what the New Georgia Project was and what it could be. At the time, there were 1.2 million uh, African-Americans, Latinos and Asian-Americans in Georgia who were eligible to vote and completely unregistered. And why that number was significant was because when you started looking at top of the ticket races, uh, going back over a decade in Georgia, the successful Republican was beating the losing Democrat by an average of about 250,000 votes. So between two and three hundred thousand was the win margin for Republicans in any statewide race. Right. President, governor, United States senator. Um, And here there were five times the Mm -hmm. number of that gap of black folks and people of color who weren't registered. So they weren't getting any phone calls. They're not getting mail. They're not getting knocks on their doors. They are completely not a part of our, you know, democratic process, our election process.
0: What year was this? Cause people think that y'all just flipped Georgia in like a microwave second. So tell folk what year this was to add a little context to it.
2: <laughs> oh, this was 2014. Um, I, mm-hmm. so brunch on new year's day, ate the eggs, right. Drank the juice, uh, Stacey laid out her vision. I was like, absolutely not, girl. Let me tell you all the reasons why this won't work in Georgia. And if you've ever met Stacey, <laughs> you know that for every point that I was trying to make, she had a counterpoint um, that was solidly researched. <laughs> that was solidly researched. Um, and I was convinced. And so, you know, that conversation, New Year's Day 2014, by um, Labor Day, I had packed up my truck uh, with my worldly possessions and drove the 24 hours from Ottawa uh, back home to Atlanta to start the New Georgia Project uh, and our voter registration uh, efforts the next day.
0: Man. So tell people, I mean, tell folk what it is. What is the the New Georgia Project?
2: Yeah. So New Georgia Project is a nonpartisan civic engagement organization that we work to build what we call super voters, right? And super voters uh, are voters who vote in every election in which my,
0: mom, are, my mom and her friends, basically. Those basically, are the super voters.
2: All the aunties, absolutely, <laughs> uh, vote in every election, right? You got a you got a levy, yes. you got a special election, uh, you got a, you got primaries, you got runoffs, they are there. But we have this theory, yep. super voters are not born, that they're made. And so what is it that black women know? Um, What is it that uh, senior citizens know? that have them coming out every election. And how do we take those learnings and um, use it to construct uh, better civic engagement programs that are more relevant, that again, help us build super voters out of young people. Listen, the folks who voted for the first time in 2020 were born in 2002. (laughs) And so one- Oh my gosh. I know. You're making me
0: feel old right there.
2: How you think I feel? <laughs> <laughs> right, uh, you know, ma'am, calling me ma'am, call Miss Nse. Like,
1: wait. <laughs> I know that.
0: I'm like, man, Outcast is dope, and they like Outcast. What is it? What is that? Like, who, who, who are they? I'm like, oh my god, they want to listen to pooh Sheisty and everybody else. Anyway, I digress. Yeah, <laughs> yeah
1: exactly.
2: Um, and so, what we talked to today. We have helped over 500,000 young people and people of color register to vote in all 159 of Georgia's counties. Um, and I think that that work uh, continues and it has had a noticeable. How much like, did that impact.
0: cost you? How much did it, how much did it cost you maybe per voter or or just the overall budget you had, whatever you can give? Because people yeah. always say, I want to go into a state and register voters. How, how expensive was it?
2: Yeah, it's expensive. Um, it is, I mean, not as expensive as having, you know, a Republican legislature who will let 12 hospitals in rural Georgia close. And, you know, a state that has the highest black maternal mortality rate in the country and uh, also in the world, uh, amongst the highest that you can be a wealthy African American woman. And I have a higher chance of like, of dying in childbirth if you're in Georgia. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like that's super expensive. But when we think about uh, the cost of the legal defense to protect our work, because we are subject to a bunch of nonsense investigations um, into our work and an attempt to criminalize us as individual leaders and the New Georgia Project, the research that goes into the work that we do. So before we knocked on a single door, um, we are holding focus groups, single gender, mixed gender, single race, mixed race, uh, urban, rural focus groups. Why do you vote? Why don't you vote? So that it informs all of our comps, our external communications, that just because we are Black-led, Southern-led, women-led organization, millennial and Gen Z doesn't automatically make us experts in the politics of those communities. So when you Mm -hmm. factor in our bold and aggressive research agenda that informs everything that we do, we have the best lawyers uh, in the the Southeastern United States, the technology that we build uh, that's designed to help us us expose voter suppression um that's designed to like again move people to action and sort of understand where our advocacy is we're spending probably about 60 dollars per person um oh, that we uh but here's the thing our voters uh show up and they show up to vote and so I think that if you look at so probably it's just a standard garden variety voter registration effort, they're probably spending like maybe 15 or 20 dollars per registrant. Right. We are not interested in registrants. I mean, registration is a step towards becoming a voter uh, and uh, become, towards becoming a super voter. Um, and so 60 dollars a vote does not seem crazy expensive when you think about the fact that these were becoming lifelong voters who are revolutionizing Southern politics.
0: You mentioned uh, voter suppression. And so one of the things I want to talk about is SB 202. There's been a lot of reporting on the bill, but I wanted to drill down into it so that listeners fully understand the Republican playbook on suppression. Uh, What does the bill do around ballot drop boxes and what's the practical impact of this for vote by mail?
2: (sighs) Okay, well, um, what it does for ballot drop boxes is one um, forbids them from being outside of the location. Right. So they have to be inside. Why that is problematic is because uh, for most people who are familiar with Dropboxes, the the normal business use of a Dropbox is to give uh, customers access to the business outside of like traditional working hours. Um, And so one, moving Dropboxes inside the building um, limits access. It also limits the hours that folks have access to the Dropbox. So if the county board of elections is open from nine to five, then you have access from the Dropbox from nine to five. Um, it adds an additional expense to the drop boxes because they are now required uh, during the hours that the drop box is available to voters to have a security guard, a, a human, monitor the drop boxes as opposed to cameras, um, which were monitoring them before. And it caps the number of drop boxes. Mm, that's right, that I know. County- Um, It caps the number of drop boxes that a county can have. So uh, in 2020, you know, depending on the county, there was an average of about one drop box every like three to five thousand voters. Right. That the idea was make it available for people who want to vote by mail and vote in this particular way. And now the new legislation caps it that no county can have more than one box, one drop box for every 100,000 voters, or one drop box for the entire county, whichever is lower. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, to go from having one drop box for every, you know, three, 5,000 voters uh, to having one drop box for every 100,000 voters is designed to target. Our uh, urban areas and our densely populated areas, aka our uh, areas where there are tons of black voters, voters of color, and progressive white voters. And so the the, the evil of Senate Bill 202, uh, when you look at all of its pieces, is that uh, many of these uh, interventions appear to be race neutral on their face, but okay. in fact they are
1: not. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com.
0: Let's go through a couple more. Talk about the bill's voter ID requirements, particularly how uh, requiring a voter's driver's license number last four digits of a Social Security number or a photocopy of an ID when requesting an absentee ballot makes it harder for certain voters, particularly older Black voters, to vote.
2: Not only does it make it more difficult for older voters and poor voters and folks in rural parts of the state, but it also um, subjects them to identity theft, identity fraud. Um, and that is not hyperbole. Our current governor, our okay. asterisk governor, uh, when he was secretary of state, oversaw the largest data breach of Mm -hmm. voters information in Georgia history. So much so that they were, um, they made an offer of one year of identity protection to Georgia voters because all of their information, name, uh, first name, last name, address, full social security number were breached and were just living on the internet, accessible to anyone uh, who wanted to have access to them. And so the idea that, A, uh, requiring people to put their social security number on an application for an absentee ballot, it doesn't prevent uh, this uh, alleged voter fraud that they seem so concerned about, that this is designed to construct additional hurdles that people have to clear in order to get access to an absentee ballot. And the thing that makes it most egregious, um, despite the fact that it's targeting people and elders is that georgia voters have been voting this way for 16 years while mm. most states in the country you know expanded absentee balloting because of the pandemic right it was the safest way to vote um, safe in terms of managing voters exposure to covid but also safe in terms of having a paper trail um, that that wasn't the case in georgia we've been voting this way for 16 years it's just that republicans have been um, the the most frequent users of absentee balloting and now that everybody did it, there's somehow a problem with it that needs to be fixed. Um, and so, yeah, uh, it's not a good idea. And it appears race neutral on its face. But we know that there are tons of older folks who particularly born in rural parts of the state, particularly born in a rural black belt, who were born before, you know, uh, birth certificates were made.
0: Uh, Let me ask you this question. Let me let me ask one more question about something else that I picked out to be very problematic. I brought it up on CNN and every other place. Uh, Early voting is expanded, but the bill prohibits mobile voting centers. And one of the things that I've not just preventing those mobile voting centers, but it also allows the Republican run state elections board to commandeer local election boards. Can you walk us through why this is problematic, uh, especially when you're thinking about Fulton and DeKalb County?
2: The mobile voting centers were uh, an example of how county government um, can be innovative uh, and helpful in expanding access to democracy. Again, in a place like Fulton County, which has been is notorious for these crazy long lines. That voters have to suffer through, particularly Black voters have had to suffer through in order to get access to the ballot. The idea of moving a, having county election workers um, bring an RV um, that's tricked out and that people can get in and get out and vote for them was genius. It was awesome and it was effective. Um, and the only reason to ban the practice is to make it more difficult for people, uh, Mm -hmm. to, you know, vote freely and comfortably and in a reasonable timeframe, uh, period. Like there is no legitimate public policy reason to ban it. It was staffed by the County. It was their idea. They funded it. And so, This is an example of the state legislature, particularly our Republican led state legislature attempting to put their thumb on the scale, um, much like uh, this takeover provision in the bill as well. And the idea being that if they deem a county to be poorly performing, which let me add, they refuse to define Of course, they Um, do. That that they are allowed to replace uh, the county elections worker, the supervisor, um, and overturn the results of an election. Um, It's so that's on the county level, and then on the state level, they removed the secretary of state as the chair of the state elections board. Uh, So he was the the secretary of state in Georgia, as in most states, is the chief elections officer. Like they are the, that's where the buck stops uh, as it relates to election administration. And so they fired Brad Rackensberger, and now he is a non-voting ex-officio member of the state elections board. Um, And again, that was punishment for refusing to participate in Trump's criminal conspiracy to steal an election.
0: Let me ask you just a couple more questions because this is kind of fascinating to me. I want to talk about where we go now. So, you know, what's the game plan for taking this to courts or getting it struck down? I know we don't have the Voting Rights Act uh, or that it was been gutted. Let me not say we don't have it. It's been gutted. So I want you to talk about that. But I also want you to talk about it in relationship to if it's still on the books in 2022, what's plan B for groups like the New Georgia Project? How do you fight the good fight and get our friends elected and reelected? this is still on the books, which is a very real possibility.
2: Right. So a couple of things. I think that we are coming at this from a number of different angles. One, we've a lawsuit within the hour of Governor Kemp um, signing the bill into law under that erases that uh, photo or painting. Mm-hmm. Uh, the plantation
0: he found. He was like, hey, how many white guys can I find to take this picture under a plantation right. photo? Let's do that. And then they arrested a black woman outside. So yeah. they had the trifecta going. Yeah, 100
2: um, percent. So we filed a lawsuit in federal court uh, with our colleagues, our comrades and our homies from Black Voters Matter and from RISE, which is a youth organizing um, outfit that, um, you know, we feel very confident that that will be successful. But to your earlier point, it might take some time uh, to work its way through the courts. Um, secondly, is that we have launched and um, are, you know, powering through with this corporate accountability campaign that we have you know brought Coca-Cola and Delta Airlines and most of the Fortune 500 to the democracy side, uh, the pro-democracy side of this fight, That despite the fact that the Chamber of Commerce was scrambling to finally put together mm-hmm. uh, their statement of opposition, that by then we had already had multiple rounds of CEOs taking out full-page ads in the New York Times, decrying these anti-voting bills that have been introduced in 47 states across the country. And so that work can Continues that we address the, we're in annual meeting season right now, so we've addressed the shareholders. Uh, with a shareholder resolution um, at Coca-Cola's annual meeting. And that that work is continuing that, um, you know, despite the fact that they are not movement organizations or movement leaders, that America's CEOs have picked aside um, in this democracy fight. And so I expect that to continue as we head to our third intervention, which is HR1 and HR4. Um, that are well, now S1, uh, that the For the People Act this is designed mm-hmm. to set a federal standard for elections, that there should be a floor. Now, states are free to do better, uh, than what the federal minimum is, but this, n- no more of this piecemeal, patchwork approach, like some states got 15 days of early voting, some states have 21, et cetera, that we're setting a federal standard for elections that all states will have to abide by. And then H.R. 4 is, you know, for restoration of the Voting Rights Act. So... I think that it's a, a legislative play, it's a litigation play, it's an
0: organizing play. It's yep. a corporate play and an organizing play. My last question for you is this. Um, one of the things I appreciate most about the New Georgia Project is all of the work that you do in rural communities in Georgia. Most people think Georgia's Atlanta and Savannah, like Chatham and Fulton and Decab, And I'm like, you can't win no election like that. And Democrats ran elections like that for a long time. But national Democrats in particular seem to forget that if you lose those rural areas by less... You can win statewide. My friend Andrew Gillum learned that. He got crushed in places where if he just would have won a few more votes or win a couple more times, you might have seen the difference in those 30 some odd votes. And they cheated, Andrew, but you got to do everything you can to overcome that. Mm -hmm. So talk about the challenges and the key differences in organizing and activating in rural communities. And, you know, my friends in South Carolina always say we want to replicate Georgia, but it takes time. It took you seven years, six years to get to where you go. So talk about those challenges in rural South Carolina before I let you go.
2: Yeah, um, I think that, you know, there is a long history of, you know, name it, the, the DNC, the DCCC, the DSCC, the DLCC, the whole alphabet soup of um, both sides of the aisle actually coming into the South finding their favorite pastor, bringing their street money, their trash bag full of cash and saying, turn your people out and then going away, right? No data, no analysis, no infrastructure (laughs) that was built. um, Just, uh, you know, an exchange of cash uh, temporarily uh, to their favorite leaders. And that's not how you build power. And so I think that one, um, changing the culture of elections and how elections get done, um, I think is one of the biggest challenges, particularly when you're starting to think about America's rural Black belt. I think, two, it is, you know, challenging uh, this sort of crisis of imagination, sort um, of belief that, um, well, there's a couple of things. One, when you talk about rural voters, most people hear uh, that it is code for a white conservative voter. And it's yep, just yep. not the case. It's just not the case at all. Um, not in Georgia, not in South Carolina. Um, and so making sure that um, one, people understand that not only are there tons of people of color, but there are a bunch of white progressives that can be organized. And then I think three, um, leveraging and supporting um, indigenous networks. And like, yes, the, 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 not the, the, coming in
0: thinking, you know, everything you can you don't know everything people that people have been doing the work.
2: Tell the people, Bakari, tell the people uh, (laughs) uh, that uh, that there is infrastructure, right, that you might not it might not be familiar to you. You might not recognize it um, as such, but there is infrastructure. And so how do we, uh, you know give them the resources that they need because they know what their communities need they know what the hopes are the fears are the aspirations for themselves their families their neighbors um and so like the way that we train our organizers is that you have twice as many ears as you do mouths and so it's absolutely important that you are listening um, to the people because they will tell you what they need um, and tell you what winning looks like and then we get to work
0: Man, we could be here all day. I just want everybody to know how dope you really are. Uh, and say thank you so much. As soon as I run my race, Stacey better pay you more because I'm coming to snatch you up. We're going to go out here. We're going to change the world. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for all you do.
2: We have plans for South Carolina. Uh, Let's do like- it
0: because I'm listening. I'm helping whatever you need. I'm writing checks and I'm knocking on doors and I'm in, I've got these focus groups on lock. So I'm down. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. It's good to see you. Have a
0: blessed day. Before I let you go, this is a special outro. I wanted to talk about this most recent class of inductees into the National Basketball Hall of Fame. In case you missed it this past weekend, the 2020 class of the National Basketball Hall of Fame inductees were named. And the headliners of that class were the late Kobe Bryant, Kevin Garnett, and Tim Duncan. This is arguably the greatest class ever of inductees as the three headliners in Kobe, Garnett, and Duncan let the post Jordan era of the NBA that was characterized by an era of parity across dynasties with the Lakers, Spurs, and Celtics, that is still one of the golden eras of professional basketball. And it goes without saying, not having Kobe with us is still a massive loss. But this weekend ceremony, where his wife and daughters accepted his nomination in his honor, was a fitting tribute to a legend and a legendary class of initiates. So, Congratulations to the 2020 class and our love goes out to the Bryant family who continues to honor Kobe's life with the kind of class and grace befitting a legend. And that's that on that. We'll see all of you guys on Thursday. Thank you so much for subscribing, sharing and downloading the Bakari Sellers podcast.